Well, it's that time again. It's number e- nine. Number nine, yes. There it is. We did our number eight thing, so we're going to give number nine from the Beatles a little bit of a pass this week. Yeah, so we should. Number nine, what can we say about number well, nine? Should I go with the Nick Nananui, oh, Gary Ablett, yeah. the Ben Cousins, just not Jacob Surgeon, because he yeah. crapped out on me today. He's yeah. in my back line, and what was it, 42 points or something? Yeah. Jakey, take a good look at yourself, mate. Yeah. It's, it's, you're letting the team down. You're letting my team down. <laughs> More importantly, you're letting Dan's yeah, team down. But, exactly. Uh, Ben Cousins, of course. We're going to do a Ben Cousins. We're going to go for 16Ks here, but perhaps oh, without the uh, perhaps without the stimulus. I was going to say, we're going to throw up on the boundary line after that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, uh, We won't get into it. <laughs> Maybe, Don't yeah. go there. The night is young. Let's yes. see what happens. <laughs> Let's see where anyway. the night takes us. Yeah, so, uh, uh, yes. Well, look, I have to say, look, straight off the bat, I'm going to jump straight into it. Hawthorne, what the hell, man? What, what the fuck was that? The Premiership favourites and you lose to Richmond by 10 goals, that's an absolute disgrace. I took my Hawthorne jumper off in disgust. There it is. Yeah. Took it off. Well, Gwes Kesha when I need her. Take it off. Yeah. <laughs> it was TikTok. embarrassing. Oh, I said TikTok yeah. on the clock. Oh, God. For yeah. Richmond, the party wasn't stopping, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Billy's, uh, Billy's with us today, but Billy just ran away after hearing those horrible puns. So. Yeah, that, that was pretty <laughs> awful. Apologies to our literally, like... Well, to our five listeners, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes, but that was that was a really, really piss-poor performance. Really, really shocking. And, I mean, if you had said at the start of the year that Richmond would beat Hawthorne by ten goals after just nine rounds of the season, God, Hawks five and four. And you're, you picked them to win the, pl- the flag too, geez. I picked them to make a granny, so I'm, you know, looking a bit off. But they were your great white hope. I'm not no, con- right I'm now. Not- they're looking like a great brown dump. <laughs> <laughs> Fitting considering the colour of their jumper, but uh, yeah, look, I'm, a, I'm not. I'm not. Cons- I'm not alarmed, but I'm concerned. <laughs> Be alert, not alarmed. Yeah, it's it's. I'm I'm not seeing the spark, which is a little bit of a worry. Um, yeah, that was. But you know, look, I mean, having said that, I still think that this year, what we've seen so far, is that it is still very wide open. Oh, I absolutely! Think, this is the o- yeah. most open Premiership race we've seen in yeah. years. I mean, West Coast, Carlton, Collingwood. Hawthorne, even sort of smoky teams like Adelaide, Essendon and Sydney, there are literally probably at least half a dozen teams right now with genuine claims to being a premiership contender this season. And we certainly haven't seen that for the last few years. Yeah, I mean, in in the past, you know, when you think of last year, I mean, to be honest, there were really only three teams that I felt could win it last year. And we're seeing the opposite this year. We're seeing three teams that are absolutely stinking it up. Two two of them having a very good good reason to do so, but... uh, Third club, Melbourne. Yep. Look, I was going to ask you, Jeej, I'd like you to embrace your inner Stalinist. <laughs> Can you give me, maybe not a five-year plan, but perhaps a five-point plan? Ha- yeah, let's right. embrace your inner super coach, go. get Melbourne back on track, and go. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, five-year plans are for Terry Wallace. <laughs> and uh, they, they, start with your, they start with you coaching uh, Richmond, and you end up in the media as a whistle mangler. So, um, Tough break. Yeah, yeah. Just, <laughs> except I think in, in some circles that some would see that as career progression. Damien Fleming. <laughs> yes. But anyway, the biologist, Damien uh, Fleming. That's right. But yeah, I guess back on topic. Let's yeah. go. Melbourne. Ha- what, Melbourne. What do you do? Step one, the fish rots from the head. I think that there's no nice, nice way to say it than that. Um, you look at Cameron Schwab's track record. You look at Chris Connolly's track record. 
what the hell are those guys doing running a club? What have they done that even exudes any element whatsoever of success? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean they, they did. They had one sort of perfect storm at Frio in two thousand and six, which was when Peter Bell and the, uh, the the rest of the senior players virtually revolted that's, against that's Chris exactly Conley's game right. plan. This is what I've heard. They basically said that the players ran that club from round. Uh, I think it was like round thirteen onwards. I think yeah. they won eight in a row at the end of the year, mm. and that was it. Including a ten a ten goal demolition of the uh, eventual oh, yeah. premiers of West Coast Eagles, Where, wherein the Eagles didn't kick a goal for the second and third quarters. That's right. It yeah. was that was. Darren, it, I yeah. still remember about that game. Darren Glass towed up Pavlich, and he was the only one who could walk off the ground with any with any semblance of um, yeah satisfaction in his performance that yeah. day. But um, but other than that, I mean, I mean yeah, it's no... it's not exactly a good mm. sign when two guys leave a club and all the supporters of that club are saying thank God for that. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and yeah, yeah, they managed to walk into this job at Melbourne. Look, they were responsible for hiring Dean Bailey. They're responsible for hiring Mark Neal, and both of those are looking like absolute well, Marcus no, strokes. They're not for hiring Dean Bailey, and they're responsible for firing Dean Bailey because yeah. we we're talking earlier about how. As you say, the storm clouds were gathering last year before that Geelong Melbourne game, which yep. ended up being a what? One hundred eighty-six points. Yeah, yeah. two hundred. It felt like five hundred points that day. Yeah. yeah, but uh, yeah. I think it was only one eighty-six in the end. Yeah, yeah. and um, before that, the the word on the street was they're going to go. Yeah, and Bailey's Bailey's good. Yeah, and in the end. I still want to know what happened there. I mean, the, the rumour has it that Gary Lyon stepped in and had something to do with that. This yeah. is what I've heard. But the fact is that you've got to say, they, they, made, they backed the wrong horse there. Yeah. Well, you actually just uh, alluded to point two on my list. Oh, here we go. Gary Lyon, it's shit or get off the pot, quite <laughs> frankly. Um, you're either involved in the club and involved in the decision-making processes or you're not. There either it put is. Either put your balls on the line and do something about what's going on there or stay the fuck out. You can't you can't hedge your bets either way. I mean, it's a perfect a perfect storm for Gary Lyon is he can go in and make decisions, but absolve himself of all blame. You can't when coach things from go wrong. Classified, Let's yeah, put it that way. But I mean, uh, that's the thing. If you truly love the club, yeah, do something about it. You know, I, Why I just don't you do something. <laughs> and this is the thing. I mean, once again, he was involved in the decision in yeah. the decision to bring on Bowie. He yep. was involved in the decision to to bring, bring on, on Mark, Mark Neal and. As I say, one didn't work for them, and the other one, well, I think that there's still a long way to go in that race, but he's starting a fair way back in the marathon. This is what I have to say. The one guy I feel really bad for in all this, and Mark Neal, is because the guy can obviously coach. I mean, Mick Malthouse doesn't suffer fools easily, and the fact is he wouldn't have spent that much time at Collingwood if the hierarchy didn't think that he knew his onions. Look, I've heard Mark Neal talk a fair bit about football in various forums and all that, and he's he's a very astute coach. Which leads me to to point three. Number three. The players. Now, there's there's some real major issues... I mean, Neil's had to deal with so much with regards to the to the playing group as it is at the Insipid moment. Insipid is the word that I would use. Well, I'll, you know, going back to the start of the year, the whole issue with regards to the captaincy. Now, I can I can understand the long term view behind putting Trengove and Grimes into those positions, but I would have included Nathan Jones in that mix if not given him the captaincy outright. Yeah, he's proven that he bleeds red and blue, which. At the moment is... More than can be said for the rest of his team. That's right. And cr- you can criticise a lot of people at that club at the moment too, who 
you would absolve from all of that Beyond because the they've been trying their they're trying their guts out every week at Nathan Jones and Mitch Clark. Yeah. But and I think that, you know, it proves the point that Nathan Jones really should have been the captain. Other guys who were put up in their mix, I mean, they should be ashamed with some of their performances. Mm. Yeah. I mean you know? they they really do. You would have thought the way that Jim Stein's passed away at the start of the year, we've seen time and time again that when players are playing for a cause like that, they can mm. they can play above and beyond themselves. The number yeah. of times that we see teams out there when they've got some sort of motivation like that, just literally perform out of their skins. I mean, yeah. I challenge you, Melbourne players, did Jim Steins mean nothing to you? Is his legacy going to be a year in which you're 0-11 and win the wooden spoon with two other... Um, w- yeah. w- what do they call them? The two other... The expansion, expansion clubs. Yeah, the two other expansion clubs in there. Is that really how much he meant to you? Yeah. I mean, I would have thought for well, his sake alone they would have lifted. I mean, it's just the, the stories that you hear about the senior guys. I mean, I think that Melbourne's hand was forced going young. As I say, Nathan Jones was probably the exception because you're hearing all these stories about what the senior guys have got up to and it's West Coast Eagles circa mm. mid-2000-esque. Yep. And, you know, that's a worry. But I think that the most alarming thing that I've heard is from the day that Mark Neal walked into the club and brought on the fitness advisor, Dave Misson, who's very highly regarded in these fields, him walking around looking at these players and saying these guys are the least prepared footballers that he's seen during his entire tenure in AFL. If you think about, I guess, how more professional the league's become over the last 15 years or so, that is an incredibly damning statement to be saying about about the players. And that that is the real sore point that sticks with me, because the fact is, if you go out there and you're playing against a better team, then it's okay, you're going to lose. But it's about endeavour, yeah, and it's about effort. And right now, I'm not seeing any from Melbourne. They really, really are an embarrassment right now. They really are. They're, they're putting forward insipid efforts week after week. And the fact is that I don't care how bad that club is. I don't care how much they're having to rebuild from the ground up and stuff like that. At yep. the end of the day, you've got to go out there, and it's about work rate. And well, whether I mean, you're a good or bad player, there's no excuse for not giving 100% yeah. out there. I mean, my response with the players is, is that I think, I, you know, in their position, I'd go young. Any senior guys who I've got on my list who have... Don't toe the line? Well, e- either if so, they don't toe the line yeah. or if they have any kind of trade value whatsoever. Oh, even that, Besides yeah. Jones and Clark and things like that. Guys who, who you know, the Sylvias, the Greens, the Davies, the Maloneys of the mm. world who... Quite clearly, don't want to be there. Yeah, get them out of the club. Yeah, trade them out. Do even a you, Bean. Even if you get a fifth round draft pick for them, just get them out of there because they're poisoning your young yeah, kids. That's exactly. And right. I mean, I, you know, it's easy to take shots at Jack Watts, and I love doing that just as much as anybody else. But at the same time, I sit there and I think, who's there setting the example for yeah. somebody like that? To know what's expected yeah. as an AFL footballer. I mean, that was why I'm, I think in an earlier podcast I said even someone like Mark Jamar, yeah. who, to his credit, he's having a half-decent year. Mm. I mean, in terms of Ruckman, he's probably in the top half-dozen of the of the season so far. Even giving someone like that the captaincy would have at least bestowed some sort of leadership and responsibility on someone whose shoulders are broad enough to take it, rather than to... Very young guys who are both... I mean, let's face it, they're battling to still get selected each week. Well, they're, not, I think they're not stand-ups. I mean, well, to, to be perfectly fair, looking at Trengrove, it looks like he's carrying an injury at the mm. moment. I, I, he's, he, he's running like somebody who's who, if he doesn't have OP, he's in the early stages of OP, which, mm. 
he's just not good. No, that's right. No, I think yeah. you know he's he's he seems to have lost his explosiveness, and I think he's your future. You you probably want to put somebody like that in cotton wool if you can. But yeah. I think you know him trying to prove that he's a leader of the club. He's trying to battle his way through it. So it's a bit like Chris Judd at the end of 07. Yeah, that's that's a pretty fair assessment, I think. Um, but I think, you know, this is the thing with regards to... To be honest, the fourth thing I do, and you're probably going to laugh at this, I'd crank out the tank tops. Yeah, absolutely. They've got to finish last, and I'll explain to you why they have to finish last. The first point is um, they've activated both their compensation picks for Tom Scully in the upcoming draft. There is a gun father-son aligned with them in Jack Viney, who everybody yep. is saying is a top-five pick. Yeah. The point is, if they finish last, nobody can outbid them for Jack Viney. You are not allowed to use compensation picks for father-son picks. So, in theory, if they finish bottom of the ladder, not only will they have their mid-round, first-round compensation pick and the pick after the first pick related with Scully... They would pick up Jack Viney under that scenario with a second round pick. And haven't I've heard something like if they finish because the reason I bring this up is because at the start of the year they said if the Steins, you know, if the whole Steins um, death doesn't motivate them, if they finish with less than five wins this season, I believe they pick up another early draft pick. Is that right? They've changed the ruling on that, so that it's now something that. Has to be go. It's an AFL-based decision as to whether they feel that you're going to get that that concession. Yeah. Now, I think that if they finished last, there would be questions about whether they were tanking anyway. Yeah. To be perfectly honest, the Russell Robertson years revisited, for instance. <laughs> um, but I think that if I was the AFL, I'd say you're getting the first two picks in the draft. You're getting a pick in the middle of the first round. And you're getting Jack Viney in the second round. To be perfectly honest, that's more than enough conversation. More to the point, we're more concerned with GWS yeah. than we are with you. Well, that's right. And there's a lot of... Once again, it sounds like there's a lot of quality midfielders coming up. They're, well, they're saying that well, this draft said is, this will be the best one ever, yeah. They're saying that this is probably the deepest draft well, the best for, one. For, uh, yeah, for a good 10 or so years. Yeah. So it's certainly one where having a lot of picks will help, but having the early picks will certainly help to their advantage. So yeah. that's kind of step... Step four, and I think you know that ties in with the senior thing as well. Play the kids, at least find out what you've got with yeah. your kids. Find out who's willing to do the hard yards now. I mean, Neil's they've got to commit to him longer term, they've got to find out what they've got on their list, they've got to find out who's willing to go to war for, for the Melbourne Football Club. Anybody who's not in that falls into that category, they should be kicking on the first tram out of uh, at a jolly, nice at a Jolly Mont station, get them out of there. They're not going to help the club move them forward. And I think that the fifth one, big question mark I guess I've had over Melbourne, particularly over the past six or seven years, is that I actually think that they've had probably the best value number of yeah. high draft picks. Yeah. But clearly the development systems and structures something aren't is, working. broken there. Yeah. yeah. So it's I think like Fremantle. <laughs> they've got to clearly have a look at their, at their development programs for their players and get that, get that right. Because it's yeah, they're they're just not getting value for their picks right now. Now no. that that's not all going to come down to. I mean, you may put the question mark on recruiting there, but that's not all going to come down to recruiting. No. There was strong, there was though. pretty there was pretty much a universal view that Jack Watts was the best player in his draft. I wouldn't have taken him with the first pick, even seeing it, having seen him and understanding where people are coming from. Yeah. But that was the universal view amongst all the recruiters. So you can't hang the recruiter for that. It comes down to the development of the player once you get them in those Well, that's years. right. I mean, you look at someone like 
the Dane Beams and the Nathan Crackers of the world who've walked into Collingwood and just... I think you mean Andrew Cracker, not Nathan Cracker. Ah, sorry, yeah, Andrew, sorry. (laughs) Andrew Cracker, yeah, who've who've walked into Collingwood and have been instantaneous hits, basically. Mm. And the fact is, that's just not happening at Melbourne. And I maintain, had some of the guys who are playing for Melbourne right now been playing for, for clubs like Collingwood, they, they would be better players right now. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I, Jack Watts, I think Jack Watts in the right club as the third forward right now would, yeah. would be a pretty dangerous option. Yeah. So, um, but I, I guess I, I'm going to sing, single Jack Watts out just for a second because yeah. I, I, there, there's a lot of things. I, I like the potential of the guy. He's got good hands. He reads the play quite well from behind the play. And he's actually a pretty good kicker, pretty good user of the ball in general play. I think the, the thing, biggest problem with his is between the ears. Well, I think the biggest problem at the moment is, is that he's got a heart the size of a pea. Mm. And Jack Watts needs to look at Jack Darling yeah. to understand yeah. how to play the game of football. Absolutely. Jack Darling probably doesn't have as much natural ability as Jack Watts does, but Jack Darling does absolutely everything on the football field. As we say, it's about ask. endeavour. Yeah. yeah. And he needs... Somebody at Melbourne needs to give him a tape of Jack Darling highlights, and it's not going to be flashy stuff. It's going to be him running guys down from behind. It's going to be him pushing 100 metres up the ground to present options for his teammates. The one percenters. That's exactly right. They're the things that win your football games, and they're the things that Jack Watts just doesn't do anywhere near enough of right now. But I have hope for him. I think that if he he does address those types of issues, he will still be a quality A. This is the scary thing. If you look at Melbourne's list, you'd almost think you'd rather be coaching them than a lot of the other sides going around right now. Because I think there's a lot of upside to their list. The, the problem is that they need to really just... As you say, I think the fish rots of the head. They need to just sort of reinvent themselves, basically, as a club. Yeah. And I well, think I mean, it's a great tragedy that Jim Steins wasn't able to achieve that in his lifetime. I mean, th- to be honest, the, the decisions to delist James McDonald and Brad Miller are still hurting them to this day because they were good, solid veterans who... Worked hard. Yeah. They weren't necessarily the most graceful players. They weren't necessarily part of their bigger view. They were great But they helped, they helped set the example for yep. the younger guys around the club. And you only have to look at, I guess, what Kevin Sheedy's done at GWS. He's brought in hard workers like Luke Power, James McDonald, um, Dean Brogan, and Chad Corns yep. to show these guys the example that's required to become a professional footballer. I mean, it's interesting that the fact that the state game's going on today. I look at someone like Craig Wolf, and I think, geez, how much do just a, a, a guy who just, in terms of natural talent, he's well and truly down in the pecking order, but he gets every single ounce out of himself that he possibly can each week and who in Melbourne would you say has been able to do that who's been able to look themselves in the mirror and say I've given absolutely everything I've got well that's the thing I think as things stands right now two and I named them during this podcast yep. I think that they're, they're the only two that can really honestly say that they've performed at, at, at a level that is near their best throughout this entire period Yep. So, righty dokey. So, if you're. Uh, so, there you go. There's Gary, your Gary since uh, I bagged you, Gary, so you probably won't be listening to this. I, I've told you what you need to do. You should get the hell out of Dodge, personally. But <laughs> fuck off and if fuck you, off now. If you're Ron, uh, Ron McCarthy, I think his name is, who's the president of the Melbourne Football Club, that's how you fix your club. There it is. You heard it here first. Get on, on the blow pod. Yes. So. Right. 
Let's jump across to something I'm very excited about, and that is Roland Garros starting this week. The Courts of the Clay. That's right. Now, I believe I've said before on this podcast, but let me just repeat. If I had to pick any player on any surface to play for my life, I would pick Rafael Nadal on clay. I rate Rod Laver as the best player of all time, but I think Nadal on clay is just... Yeah, it's it's the perfect storm, basically. It's... you. You cannot topple that. And I'm hoping that that will prove the case again this year. It, it really is... An, it's a really interesting build-up that we've had because Rafa has beaten Djokovic in two of the three um, lead-up events, whereas Djokovic had beaten him in, I think, the seven finals previously to that. And the other one, um, the Fed one. So I guess you'd have to look at it and go... For the you know I well we've had this for the past couple of years but those three guys you can really throw a tissue over them right now it would not surprise me to see any one of those three win it having said that I think that Rafa on clay yeah he's he's going to break Bjorn Borg's record yeah I mean it is interesting uh, uh, Djokovic actually looks a little bit off the boil he seems distracted by things that normally wouldn't have bothered him as much I suspect that perhaps after winning that Australian Open final. He's almost gotten a little bit too cocky, mm. because I think that was that was almost it to him. The, the one question about him was his mental temperament, yeah. and the fact that he could come back against Nadal in that match, which is bears comparison with any other match I've ever seen in, in all my lifetime of following tennis. The fact that he could win that, he's almost thought, well, that's it. I've got the wood over Federer. I've now beaten Nadal in the last seven finals. I can take them anywhere on any surface at any time. Whereas Rafa has sort of gone back... I mean, he hurt. He was hurting after losing that match. I don't think I've ever seen Rafa hurt that much. Perhaps when Fed beat him at five. But I think he he knew that he should have won that match. When he had that that backhand down the line at 30-15, um, at uh, to go up... He was up 4-3 at that stage. Had he won that point, he's up 40-15 with a point to go up 5-3 he would have won that that championship. So I think he is actually sort of drawn, almost drawn more from that that loss than Djokovic has from that win. Okay, so playing devil's advocate here. Here we go. If you're told the end result is that none of those three has won the French Open tournament, who's won it? I would have to say someone like Songer or Monfils purely because they've got the home crowd on their side. That would be my pick. I mean, as good as Andy Murray is, I cannot see him beating one of those guys in the semis and one of those guys in the final. I don't slam. think. I don't think Andy's a clay. No, the, the clay would suit him. Andy's the type of guy who will actually go out early. I reckon. Yeah. What about someone like Fernando Vadesco? Look again. You look at him and you think. Yeah, it's, it's it's almost like you're just waiting for the penny to drop. I mean, yeah. when I saw him beat, uh, when I saw him push Nadal. In that five-set marathon, mm. you almost looked at him and you thought, well, there's the new number four in the world. Mm. Because I think Andy Murray is possibly the most overrated tennis player of all time, to be perfectly honest. He hasn't won a slam. He's only made two finals, and in both of those finals, or two or three finals, but he's yet to win a set in a Grand Slam final. Mm. It's that simple. So I think he's very, very overrated. And when I saw Vadasco mm. in that, or Tabasco as I call him, yeah. <laughs> when I saw him in that match, I thought... Jeez, there's there's someone who's going to be, you know, a star of the future. He hasn't kicked on, mm. and I I I don't know whether that's yeah injury yeah, yeah. concerns between the years, whether he 
sort of needed to win that match in order to have some sort of belief. But I think, yeah, even someone like David Ferrer on clay, I can see him doing doing something in this tournament. But as I say, Nadal on clay is the, is the toughest assignment that anyone in the world can have. Mm-hmm. And right now I'd see him beating Federer in the semis and beating Djokovic in the final. Okay. And on the women's side? It's very exciting because Azarenka, in Azarenka, I think we finally have a worthy women's champion. Mm. I read a very good quote around Serena Williams this week, is that whenever she really wants to win, she'll win. Mm. The question is, does she really want it all the time? And I remember when she came to the Aussie Open a few years back, and I think she was number 76 in the world or something like that, and all the talk in the build-up was about her fat ass in in these skirts that she was wearing, and she basically... That stuck in her craw, and she went on to win the thing, just basically to stick it to the rest of the world, basically. When she has that sort of mindset, now that um, Justine Enna has retired, there's no one else who can beat her when she has that sort of mindset. I don't see her in that sort of frame of mind leading into it. I mean, my, my Serena concerns, very similar to, my, to, I guess, the same concerns I'd have with Tiger Woods in golf, is the, the kilometres that are on that body right now. Mm-hmm. Is that it's uh, not a racial thing? Let's let's be no clear. no no. I'm talking about <laughs> is that at their best, they're they're you know they're the streets ahead of everybody else. But partly the mental game and partly just the the body breaking mm. down. But I will say though, in Azarenka, I think we've got perhaps the first worthy uh, queen yeah. of the women's game in a long time. I mean, Wozniacki never deserves to be number one. I'm sorry, yep, but anyone who's agreed. never won a Grand Slam, there is no way that they should be number one in the world. And agreed. You, and you've got all these yeah, these sort of tag-alongs and almost rands in the women's game. Even someone like Samantha Stoza, who you, you've just got to show some consistency out there. Mm. And I think the best thing that Azarenka, I've seen from Azarenka is that I think she can win on any tournament in any tournament on any surface right now the way she's playing. Yeah, and that I makes her pretty much yeah the deserved world number one and deserved yeah. favourite leading into the event. I think having said that, I think that Stosa's best surface is actually clay, which oh, is very very yeah. weird to say for an Australian. But mm. uh, I mean, she's made two finals now, and yeah. I was surprised she won the US Open. But um, oh, Serena she's got imploded pre- yeah. that day. Yeah, I think that it was a little bit of a perfect storm for her. Yeah. She she managed to uh, she managed to con- control her emotions when Serena couldn't, and she probably played the game of her life. To be fair, yeah, I I still think the loss to Schiavone, she yeah. should have won that event. Yeah. I mean, she had taken out Schiavone in the first round the year before. She should have won the French that year, and I think that almost perhaps that stuck in the back of her not- mind the fact that she knows she's almost missed her shot there. Mm. But I think, look, I'd, uh, she can make a semi very, yeah. very easily. I don't think she can compete with the the real, like the um, Kvitovas and the Williams and the, um, the Sharapovas got... even and the um, Azarenkas of the world. But I think she could she could jag a semi bird. I think she's got Kvitova in this in this if she gets through in the second week, early in okay, the second week. Yeah. Well, that's that would be my concern for mm. her because I think someone like Kvitova. I mean, we talk about Melbourne again. There's a, there's a lot of upside to Kvitova. There's a lot to like about her. I mean, she became the first woman to win... First person, sorry, born in the 1990s to win a Grand Slam. Mm. And I think you look at her and you look at Azarenka and you think there's a potential sort of Federer-Nadal-esque rivalry 
brewing there on the women's circuit. Yeah, which is probably good for their sport Absolutely. because they, they really haven't had that for uh, well for a long time. Well, since yeah, sort of. I guess the last one you'd say is almost Graf and Celis. Mm, yeah. Yep. But uh, all right. Or or Hingis and one of the Williams sisters, I guess. Oh, but they always used to beat her. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so uh, the one that's the 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 wrap of. Uh, all things tennis related. The rap of Khan. Khan. <laughs> Very good. Now, I guess well, the other thing we've got to look at is um, the test series going on between the Windies and the Poms. Look, I sent you an email earlier this week, and to a few other people said for all the upside that we see in West Indies cricket and all this talk about an apparent revival, they have won two of their last thirty-one tests. That's 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 bad. I'm sorry. But even Zimbabwe and Bangladesh would have sort of comparable records to that over their last 31 tests, I would have thought. I think the thing I like about it is it's showing some fight. I mean, even last night, as an example, they were 6 for about 150, and they finished mm-hmm. 6 for over 300 at stunts. And interesting, Marlon Samuels, who is probably one of the guys I thought was the most mentally fragile yeah. of all of them, actually sat down and knuckled down Last night, and well, made a, a good series. Made a made a ton, and yep. the skipper of making. Uh, I, I, I think I made the comment about the skipper is in the team as a professional captain, almost. Well, that's he's the Mike really of yeah. West Indies cricket. Is it not good enough to be in there as a bowler? Not good enough to be in there as a batsman? And there he is, 88, 88 not out. Mm, um, but I mean, the scary thing is, you look at England right now, and they're a good as side as we've seen since since Australia at the turn of the day, uh, the turn of the century. Yeah, I think you look at that lineup. There is just there is so much to love about them. They've got one of the best keeper batsmen of all time, I think, in Matthew Pryor. They've got the best Ooh. spinner in the world today, Graham Swan. They've got a, a pace lineup where you've got Anderson and Broad as, as walk up starts, and then you've got the choice between someone like Bresnan, Onions, and Tremlett and Finn as your third quick. There's a lot to like about that. Strauss is a very good captain. Cookie could break all the records for test batting if he plays long enough. And Jonathan Trott and Kevin Peterson, as a one-two sucker punch in the middle order, geez, it, it's tough to see them losing any sort of matches. Yeah, I think that that's the thing. They've got great depth. Um, just, uh, just an interesting thing with regards to Graham Swan. Uh, he's one of the, the few off-spinners of recent times that's absolutely <laughs> refused to, to yeah. learn how to bowl a deuce right. And I, re- I think it was Ashley Mallet wrote a really interesting article, and I hadn't thought about it until I read that article, but I, I certainly agree with his sentiment, which is that these guys who learn how to bowl the deuce row can't, can't turn their stock ball anymore. Yeah. I mean, I remember... And it does make you very predictable as an off-spin bowler. I remember Tubby Taylor always used to say, when, when Warney was going for his hat-trick... He said, bowl your leg break because your leg break will always be good enough. And he always encouraged Warney to bowl his stock ball more than anything else. Yeah. And I think that is the key as a spinner. If you've got a ball that you can go to 99% of the time and say, I'm going to pitch it, I'm going to drift it, I'm going to turn it, then that will be enough, really. Mm. You do not need variation from there. Any variation you get from there is a bonus. But if you've got that stock delivery that... When push comes to shove, you can always rely on that, 99 times out of 100. 
You, you, you've got it made in the shade yeah. as a spin bowler. I think you just described Glenn McGrath's career. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Hitting the top of off with the odd bouncer. Yeah. It's a simple game. Yeah. It's a simple game. But, uh, yeah, as I say, and, you know, you think about uh, the guys who, who came on board. The Pakistani guy's name escapes me right now. I had the first guy to come up with the so-called Dusra. Harbhajan Singh's career. Sakhain Mushtaq. Yeah, Sakhain Mushtaq. There you go. That's the guy I was thinking of. Yeah. You think Harbhajan Singh? But they reckon he chucked his. Yeah, well. Just quiet. I think, I, to be perfectly honest, I think uh, I, I think off-spin bowlers, to, do, to, to turn it the other way, they are throwing. Yeah. I, uh, I think a lot more... The reason that the Dusra is suddenly a lot more prevalent is since the 15-degree rule came yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. But I mean, I've got a lot of respect for Graham Swan for for taking that hard stance, yeah, and absolutely. I think that, and I think that it really shows in the way he's a, he the way he thinks about his bowling and the way that he actually bowls as well. He is very much he is he's an intellectual cricketer. Let's mm. put it that way. I mean, his his tweets and his his podcasts and his social media and that sort of thing. He's a very intelligent, well spoken, yeah. very funny guy. And I think, yeah, he, he leaves a lot of his counterparts in the chat. When you look at someone like Michael Clark and the, yeah, the level of banality that you'll <laughs> invariably find from his tweets, um, I, I have a lot of time for Swanee. Mm. And I think right now it, it's him then daylight in terms of the best spinner in the world. Yeah. Which is, it's amazing to consider. Perhaps Ajmal. Perhaps Ajmal I'd throw in there. Yeah, I was yeah. just, just going to say, it's amazing to consider something like that when you, you consider the rich vein of spinners that were around mm. just five or six years ago. Yeah. That it's, uh, that it's gone so fast, so fast. But uh, And that he's a finger spinner rather than a, a wrist spinner. Yeah, that, that as well. Yep. But, uh, yeah, you'd be pretty comfortable knowing the check. Graham Swan in your team. I oh, and, and um, I cannot speak highly enough of Jimmy Anderson. Yeah. I mean, when he came to Australia six years ago in 2006, he was cannon fodder. Mm. He, he was rubbish. I mean, Ricky Ponting just annihilated him in Brisbane, and he never got his confidence back for the rest of the series. But he has... He is basically, yeah, re, rejuvenated his, his career. He's reinvented himself, was the term I was looking for, as a bowler. And he, right now, if I had to pick a, a fast bowling attack any you know across all the bowlers in the world... He would be the first guy I'd pick in my team. Ahead of Dale Stone? Yes. Yeah, wow. I mean, I think that the thing about Ginny Anderson is that he's done what everybody thought Mitchell Johnson was going oh, to do, but never so. did. Which is to say he be embraced... A good yeah, that's <laughs> But it's not only being a good bowler, it's embracing that leadership role amongst the bowlers yeah. as well. He's the guy, when things aren't quite going right for one of the other bowlers, it's over there, you know, having a word in their ear. And, and that's so. why I put him just... I mean... Les, don't get me wrong, Dale Staines in my world 11. And he is, I mean, his strike rate bears comparison with any other bowler in the history of the game. The reason I put Jimmy Anderson slightly ahead of him right now is because Jimmy gets to bowl in English conditions 50% of the time. Yeah, which is going to help a guy who hoops the ball around. Yep, exactly. Having said that, I, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm genuinely so excited about the England versus South Africa series coming up. I think that has the best, the potential to be the best test series in recent memory. I really do. There is the, Either team could win it 
it could be a nil all draw because of the English weather. Either team could win it 2-1. You know, there's any, absolutely anything could happen in that series. And that's what you want from Test cricket. Yeah, and that's what you'll never get from 2020. Actual enthusiasm and, I guess, yeah, sort of yeah. anticipation for a series. It's interesting that we uh, just, just go into 2020 with all the uh, investigations into... Corruption in the IPL, something that we perhaps alluded to in earlier podcasts, that it's actually coming to fruition a little bit earlier than we would have thought. It's very simple. When you've got inconsequential matches, people won't be, people will not care if they um, alter the outcome of the match. Yeah, is that simple? I mean, if, the, if this was in a test match, and five players had been discovered for match fixing, that would, or that would probably be the story of our lifetime, basically. Mm-hmm. Five players involved in a in a match. Even spot-fixing conspiracy in a test match. Yeah. The problem is when you play meaningless matches that no one will remember the result of six months from now, let alone five years. I mean, I could tell you the result of every test match that Australia has played in my lifetime, just about, and I could tell you the results of most test matches from the last ten years between any other neutral sides. 2020s, I'd struggled to tell you who Australia even played six months ago, let alone whether they won or lost. And I think when you have these meaningless, inconsequential matches where the result does not matter, then that's where the spot fixers and the bookies will just be licking their lips going, right, we are we are absolutely going to make a killing off this because the players, are, yeah, they're, they're just ripe for the picking. Yeah, so... Not surprising, though, having said that. And uh, it's uh, we're getting into a little bit of the, the wrap-up time in, in some of the other professional leagues. We've had the EPL finish with uh, Manchester City squeaking One of the by. most remarkable last days of the season you'll ever see. With five yeah. minutes to go, they're down by a goal when, a, when they need a win, mm. and they come back to win. Yeah. I mean, that, that, yeah, that was really amazing. And uh, the... Uh, Champions League going to the penalty shootout with Chelsea squeaking home and Seth Blatter coming out saying he wants to find another way to handle said game. I was going to say, what do you what do you think about penalty shootouts? I hate them. I hate them too. Yep. Here's what I'd do. I'm going to do something incredibly revolutionary and people will probably laugh at it until they realise that it actually make for a different and interesting spectacle. Every five minutes, take a player off I'm, the field. Yep. I'm exactly the same. And, I love that idea. And no offsides. Ooh. Next goal wins. Got so golden goal type scenario. Absolutely. And would you play extra time then? Yeah, yeah. But you play till somebody scores a goal. No, but would you play extra time with the no the five minute rule? I'd play, I'd play so you'd no, have a half hour first. Uh, no, actually no. Sorry. No, yeah. Oh, after, so, so after, after the ninety, 90 minutes. After the oh, ninety okay. minutes. Yep. Yeah, we we play eleven or eleven. No offside. And every five minutes, we're going to take somebody off the field. Yeah, and it's certainly for the tacticians out there. To make Absolutely. Do you do you pull off a do you pull off a Lionel Messi, <laughs> or yeah. do you pull off a, a, a backhand? Yeah. And I just think that the no offside completely changes the spectacle as well. Yeah. From a goal kick, you can just bomb it forward. Yeah. And if no one's around, that works. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I, I just think that's my that's my strategy. It's too, I, I just think it's too out there. But, you know, one of the things I'd love to see is somebody invent a game very, very similar to soccer that basically had no offsides. I just think it would be a much more enjoyable game to watch than soccer is. 
Yeah. I could appreciate the skill and the grace and the tactics of the game, but I'd love to see a, a game like soccer that was 16-14. <laughs> that would be pretty awesome. Yeah. And it's certainly making it a much more enjoyable spectacle for the fans. That's exactly right. But uh, with the with the soccer over, uh, perhaps the next sport due to wrap-ups, the uh, NBA... We're at the stage we're at the final we're at the final five with one team to be knocked out tomorrow, either Boston or Philadelphia, who are playing game seven in the Eastern Conference semifinals. Meta World Peace is out. Meta World Peace is out, yeah. Um, I was gonna say (laughs) he did us a favour and went out with a bang by Proclaiming that his team that lost four one was better than the other team. And they just underachieved. As I don't know. I say, let's sign him up for Carlton membership. All those Carlton fans last year who said they were a better team than West Coast. Yeah, dream on. Uh, I, I've, I mean, I don't know. The only reason how I could see them being better than Oklahoma City was if somehow somebody had managed to, to maim Russell Westbrook. I was going to say, if they switched which, jumpers at half-time. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Miami, unfortunately, I... I the Miami hates. The Miami hates after falling behind 2-1, managed to uh, win three straights. And Damn their oily hides. But um, doing it in a relatively controversial way, um, Game 5 in particular, where Udonis Haslam put a cheap shot on Tyler Hansborough, found himself suspended for a game. But I think the worst one of the lot was the hit that Dexter Pittman put on uh, Lance Stevenson. Basically clotheslined the guy as he was uh, coming in for... For an offensive rebound, out for three games. Lucky to be playing at all. Jeez. Um, and that was they were both retaliatory hits for things that had happened earlier on in the series. Uh, Lance Stevenson, when LeBron James missed the free throw in one of the earlier games, pulled a choke sign. Uh, akin to uh, akin to Mark, Mark Williams, Williams a few Mark years Williams ago. Line one for you. Yeah. Um, Akin to Mark Williams a few years ago, and um, the Miami hate didn't particularly take to that too well, and the hit on Tyler Hansborough was uh, in relation to a, a play that he'd made on Dwayne Wade. Now, I'm not, I'm, I hate the hate, but... Um, you think they're going to win? I, no, I really hate the hate. Let me just <laughs> jump on this point. I find it a little bit contradictory that they're coming out and taking shots at Indiana when they're the ones who started a lot of this... This stuff going on in the early games. Dwayne Wade was lucky not to get thrown out of an earlier game where he, he virtually tackled a guy in the <laughs> open court. Um, he, got, he got away with it purely because he was Dwayne Wade. LeBron James and Danny Granger were going at it pretty much the entire series. There were certainly a lot of elbows thrown between those guys. And so they were the instigators, is that what you're saying? I think that they, they certainly started as much stuff as Indiana did. Yeah. Um, they were throughout trying to paint Indiana as being the bad boys, but they they played we didn't that way. Start the fire. Yeah, well, <laughs> Indiana, Indiana were just trying to stand up to them, and that, I think you know you're well within your rights to try and plant your feet in front of the bully and take a few swings yourself. They they were trying to do that, and um, yeah, I mean, unfortunately for them, they they weren't able to do so. But um, I was just going to say, reference that sensational YouTube clip from earlier on in the year with the Aussie kid who was being picked on by the bully. He yeah. ended up just get, get, basically doing a tombstone pile driver on on the bully who was picking on him. Get onto YouTube and and research that. Like, yeah, but, um, I mean, look. <laughs> The hate have got through. They'll play the winner of Boston and Philadelphia. Oh, which will be Boston. 
I would really ex- I would expect to be Boston, yeah. but Boston are a little bit banged up at the moment. So unfortunately, I can see the hate getting through in the Eastern Conference. Mm. Personally, I think it's going to be moot. the The two best teams in the league this year have been the San Antonio Spurs and the Oklahoma City Thunder. They're in the Western Conference. The Spurs are yet to lose a game in the playoffs. To be honest, the Spurs wow. haven't lost a game for over a month and a half now. Wow. They're, they're absolutely rolling on all cylinders. Firing I, on all cylinders. You could say that. <laughs> that too. But um, the, Spurs are, the Spurs are kicking kicking ass and taking names. They, they demolished... <laughs> Demolished the Clippers 4-0 in the semi-finals after... Um, that's it. To win a seven-game series to zip, that's... Yeah, that's Yeah, well, they've won two back-to-back now, 4-0. Oh, you, they demol- everybody that's thought coming. Everybody Jeez. thought Utah was going to be a tough match for them. Nah, 4-0. Everybody thought that the, the Clippers, who are an up-and-coming that's team, would challenge them as well. 4-0. Bloody but hell. Uh, Oklahoma will pose a little bit more of a threat for them. Uh, Oklahoma are, are re- the real up-and-coming team of uh, the NBA, they've got arguably the best all-round player in the league in Kevin Durant. Definitely Durant, the best. Durant. Durant. Not Durant. <laughs> oh, Durant. Yeah. Oh. He's, um, he's the scoring leader. He's, he's just a... Yeah, he's, he's a scoring leader. He led the league in scoring. That's not an for, all-round player, baby. For the that's, second, that's an for the second Well, for the second year in a row, but he's, uh, he's upped his assists, he's upped his rebounds this year as well, so he's becoming a more complete player. They've got the most explosive player left in the in the um, playoffs in the playoffs in Russell Westbrook, who has just he just demolished the Lakers single handedly in games. And they've got the best six man in the league in James Harden, who is a who's a six foot five cannonball. Basically, he can drive the lane, he shoots good range out to twenty five feet. The the Harden Ginobili matchup, the Parker Westbrook matchups are going to be very very interesting. And I'm probably going to decide that series. I see that series going six or seven games, and I, I see it being fantastic open court basketball as well. The Spurs so triple points each. Yeah, the Spurs led the league in scoring this yep. year, and I think that you know Oklahoma are certainly offensively very potent as well. Triple figures each. Yeah, let me correct. So, <laughs> could be um, that could be a tremendous series. It's unfortunate that the way that they structure the playoffs that that wouldn't be our, our final, final series. Yeah. yeah. So it's a bit like the Yankees and the Red Sox being the two best teams in the MLB. Yeah, that can happen sometimes. But, um, yeah, so I, I'm expecting that the, 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 the problem that may well happen, it may well count against the West, unfortunately, having the two best teams because those games could be such a slugfest. They'll fest exhaust themselves. That they'll exhaust themselves and the team on the East will get through. I, I, I'd be surprised if the Heat lost the Eastern Conference from where they are now. I'd be surprised if they're even playing a sixth game, to be honest. I could see them, whoever they're playing, they'll probably beat them in five. So I was going to say, it's sort of like Collingwood having to play Hawthorne in the prelim final last year and yeah. having to front up against Geelong in the final. Yeah, that's a, that's a good analogy for it. Geelong, who basically had the bye coming into yeah. the grand final. Darren Glass showed up and the rest of the Eagles stayed home. So, But, um, yeah, so it's been a very... The shortened lockout season's been very interesting... For, for all the wrong reasons, unfortunately, lots and lots of injuries. And it's almost going to be the team that's the fittest at the end is going to survive. Survival of the yeah. fittest. Where's Charles Darwin when you need him? Yes, it's Who been a bit... he play for? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm trying... 
he's not really yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. he's, he's a free agent yeah so. <laughs> in more ways than one he's got a with jump shot from what I hear too Charles Darwin but yeah, uh, don't get him in the free throw line yeah so 100% he's, yeah Led Stevenson won't be making any choke signs got Darwin <laughs> stepping up that's for sure that's um, the one so I guess on that note, I'm not sure. Oh, we haven't. We probably haven't updated uh, fantasy footy for a little while. You had your, you had your like a surgeon rant earlier on. Like a surgeon, fuck. Unlike exactly a surgeon, surgical precision. Let's put it that way. Yeah. yeah. And bloody, bloody Hardwick taking off Ellis at three quarter time. He was, he was playing better than so many other players out there. He gets stuck on fifty one, whereas. GJ's laughing it up, fuzzball over there. He's got round, uh, he's got a uh, conquer in his side. Ends up in the mid seventies. Yeah, I'm yeah. we'll cover. So uncool. <laughs> we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit more about fantasy football, but I'm I'm benefiting from a very shrewd start of the season, really. And I'm I'm, I'm, I'm I got on board Ivan Marek very very early on at about two hundred and seventy thousand, and I mean I'm I'm loving that pick. It's he's been probably the best performed ruckman in fantasy football this year, and it's been a a really good pick up for me. I jumped on Brad Ebert I've, at about 300,000 and he's been flying as well. Um, yeah. I'm sorry, I've just checked the score. I tipped Sydney, GJ tipped St Kilda and they're, they're thrashing them. They're annihilating them. 70 to 40. Uh, uh, you know. So uncool. So uncool. Or at least they're in my flexi for 50 points. I'll, I'll take that one. Yeah. But, but um, yeah, look, I have to admit, yeah, as you're saying, you made a couple of astute picks at the start of the year. I came I into think this. That that's, I mean, that's the yeah. key to it. Unfortunately, you really you win these things by having a good configuration early and yeah. modifying accordingly. And that was my problem. This is my first year getting into the whole the realm of fantasy football. I didn't know what I was doing. I made a couple of very yeah. I wasted a couple of trades early on. I had Ben Howlett sitting on my bench at four hundred odd grand. For the uh, for the first couple of weeks, yeah, that's that's so, not gonna, never going to do it. Yeah, minimum wage guys on yep. your bench. That's the one. Unless you're injured and they're coming back next week, it's all minimum wages there, and you're using them as cash cows. Let them play. The let them let them play three games. Let their value go up and trade their asses out. Yeah. Although I have I have done all right on the footychips.com site. I'll give you that because they they were the ones where I I um I went for the the cash cow straight away, and the way the um. Uh, I guess the way the values go up and down each week, by basically they either go up by 0.4 points or down by 0.4 points. It makes it a lot easier to pick guys who you know have got nothing but upside to them for the next, well, six weeks or so. Mm. So guys, I reference Dane Zorko, basically. I, yeah. I think he's worth 1.8 points at the moment, whereas mm. someone like Stephen Motlop is on 4.4. So basically, you know, the best part of seven weeks' worth of difference right there mm. for guys who are going to score... Comparable, comparable yeah. figures each week. Yeah, I mean that's the other key is finding the bargains very early on. I mean, sleepers. I think yeah. they call them. Yeah, everybody who jumped on Michael Barlow two years ago is an example who was just laughing it up till he broke his leg. He was, you yeah. know, he was. You paid eighty odd grand for the guy, and he was scoring you a hundred consistently every week. They're the oh, type I think of guys. Jonathan Giles is the best example of that this year. Absolutely, he's the best example of it this year. Yep. Yeah, Jonathan Giles and. Uh, Potentially Thomas Bug. 
It's going like to be very, it's going to be very, very interesting uh, next year. Without the, it's been a the little bit easier. Teams have, yeah, yeah it's made it a lot easier. Warped the competition yeah. because you've basically been able to pick up all these guys for a hundred grand a pop at the start of the year. Yeah, when the fact is, you know that they're all going to go up about two fifty grand by the end. That's right. It's it's certainly made it a little bit easier to get the higher scores. And uh, I've been clocking in two thousands pretty regularly this year, yeah, which is something that I yeah. hadn't certainly hadn't done in the past. So. Um, I have to say my best score this year is 1960 or so. I haven't yeah. I haven't been able to crack 2000. The yeah, way this round yeah. looking so far, I think the biggest problem I've had is I went, I'm going to go gun midfielders, average forwards and bad defenders. And what I've realised is that blokes like Kyle Horsley, James Magna and Brad Ebert, they're clocking just as good sorts of scores as some of these elite midfielders yeah. and you're paying about half as much for them. That's right. The, the trick's about finding value. Um, you need to have guys who you can rely on, but you also need to have guys who are probably going to be a little bit more variable in their output, but when you take the net impact of what they're giving you over the year, they'll give you something quite similar to the guns at about half the price. Yep. So you have to have that imperfect side of people's games in your mix. And it's about understanding, you know, where the where players are, whether they're going to progress, and the types of triggers that you're looking for. Guys who have played about 50 games, or if, if they've shown something in those early 50 games, they start to become more consistent. Well, even Ivan Marich. Yeah. Ivan Marich, isn't it? I've yes. heard someone say before, yeah. yeah. So for fuck's sake, it's an I-V-A-N. Who gives a mm. shit how it's pronounced? Get but over I mean, it, Marich. <laughs> but I mean, at the, this Marich is a perfect example. He played, what, 80, I looked think? At, looked at him at the start of the year, and I went, who else have Richmond got on their list who's going to be a Ruckman? Knowing he was going to get a good run at it, he has had a good run at it, and he's been performing incredibly well as a result of that. They're the types of guys you want. Ebert, looking at Ebert, Ebert was somebody who was solid but not spectacular at the Eagles, goes to Port Adelaide, immediately becomes their second-best midfielder. Definitely worth the value. For I think that the phrase you just said there, though, second-best midfielder, that's a key. Absolutely. And that's why someone like Luke Shuey this year has really gone, and even Scott Selwood, they've gone gangbusters because Daniel Kerr is copping the best tag each week. And yeah. it allows them to fly under the radar to a certain extent. Absolutely. One of my strategies has always been take the second best midfielder uh, back five or six, well, it's even probably longer than that now. It's almost a decade ago. I'd take Goodwin over Mark Rusciuto every day of the week. Yeah. And it wasn't because I thought Goodwin was a better player than Rusciuto. I just knew that Rusciuto was always going to get tagged and Goodwin would score more. Tyson Edwards, for similar reasons, in that Adelaide team. Somebody who would generally not get the, the second best tagger even those types of guys are guys who you can lock in knowing that they're going to score consistently well and yeah you lock them in you take the 100 points every week and you say thanks for coming yep all righty well well on that note i, I think, think that just about wraps yeah. it up for episode nine we've uh, we've put billy to sleep in the corner so that's yeah. probably uh, a sure a sure Not sign a sign. sure a sign as any that we should probably be uh, winding this thing up so uh until next time Take care, spiky hair. Take care, spiky hair. There you go, Dad. He's mixing it up. Great to see. And uh, we will catch you later.